This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by Isabel Hardman and Fraser Nelson. So, after 40,000 delegates flew from around the world to Glasgow and almost as many Nicola Sturgeon selfies, the COP26 summit has ended. But was it a flop? Here's how the COP president, Alok Sharma, summed it up himself yesterday. May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the, the deep disappointment But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Isabel, it doesn't sound like a ringing endorsement of his work of the last two weeks. No, and the way in which this unfolded was that there had been draft wording that was going to uh, the final negotiations uh, that evening on, on Sunday on Saturday evening sorry and then at the very last minute India and China uh, were holding out against this basically threatening to detonate this this big agreement saying that the wording on coal had to be changed from phase out to phase down And this was seen by a lot of countries as a a betrayal or a disappointment, but it was the only way that an agreement was going to go ahead, basically. Uh, What was really interesting was after his his moment of emotion, Alok Sharma then presumably was allowed to have some sleep and then did the morning broadcast round where he was much keener on being upbeat about the achievements of this summit which would suggest that number 10 who put out a press release shortly after his uh, crying incident with the prime minister hailing a historic achievement and a historic agreement to save the world at uh, the number 10 were a little bit unhappy with the way in which Sharma had closed the summit suggesting that it had ended in disappointment his line was to us on times radio uh, i was presenting in the morning was his line was that he only had about six hours sleep over three days and it was much because he was tired as uh, his reaction to the agreement itself boris johnson in his press conference yesterday afternoon was saying there's not that much difference between phase down and phase out well there obviously is because india and china wanted that wording to be changed why would you threaten to blow up the summit on the mm. uh, on any other grounds and if you look at the detail of the difference between phase out and phase down it means you can continue to use coal in some settings uh, it's much easier for for india in particular which has a, um, a a much later net zero target than the 2050 target that was being uh, worked on at cop so uh, at the start of the cop summit Narendra Modi announced that India would have a net zero target of 2070, which was seen by a lot of people in India as being really ambitious. But in terms of the COP timetable, obviously, is 20 years too late. So perhaps, in a sense, it's actually more achievable than commitments that countries sign up to that they then don't keep, which is something we talked about a lot in the magazine uh, recently, that actually these summits aren't uh, where the, the 
planet is saved or destroyed. It's it's in uh, national parliaments and it's in the policies that, that each individual government then implements. But I think for Boris Johnson, the disappointment will be much much more bitter than that felt by Alok Sharma on the stage because the Prime Minister has spent the past year building up to the COP summit as being something that's going to be part of his legacy as leader. He wanted to be able to say that he'd sort of saved the world in in the way that Gordon Brown uh, accidentally said that when he was talking about saving the banks. (laughs) Boris Johnson wanted to claim that he'd saved the world and even his language in the run-up to COP in the weeks before was, you know, if Glasgow fails, the whole thing fails. He then got to the end of the summit saying, well, we've made a start, which is not something you're going to have on your legacy. You know, the the, the authorised biography of Boris Johnson is not going to be, well, we made a start. Um, And so for him, there's a deep disappointment, not just, I think, at the agreement, but also the way in which uh, the way in which it landed in the in the media. Fraser, Alok Sharma's own assessment aside, how do you see the achievements of the COP26 summit? Do you think that it managed to do some some things that you didn't expect it to? I think it was a bit more successful than the tears of Alok Sharma suggested. There were sort of peripheral agreements. And we've now got to... I mean, there's no Glasgow agreement in the way that there is a Paris agreement. I don't think anybody's going to talk in future years about the Glasgow Declaration. But there are, in the funny semantic worlds of climate change negotiations, some moves forward. For the first time, for example, they've agreed to name fossil fuels as being part of uh, the problem. And they're mentioned by name. The Now, in Paris, they had to come back and give updates every five years. That's now changed to every one year. So you've got these... Um, they've also agreed how to count it as well. Previously, they were all using various different ways to count their own contribution to, to, to climate change. And now there's going to be a centralised UN way of doing it. So there have been small progress made. John Kerry, the you know, the former US State Secretary, who was seconded by um, Joe Biden to do this, says that the Paris agreement set the arena, Glasgow has fired the starting gun, and now the race begins in Egypt next year. So in other words, the Egyptian conference, the next, the next COP, COP27, will probably be a bit more um, easier to get your head around because of the preparatory work done in COP26. But there wasn't any great goal, really. I mean, the moment it, there, there's so much you can read between the semantics as well. I mean, some people will come up with calculations saying that all the agreements mean that global warming has now been limited to 1.8 degrees rather than 3.3 before. You certainly, there are some figures around saying that the level of progress has been as dramatic as that. Then you get other people who calculate the figures saying, no, this is all nonsense, it's been a complete failure, we're still roughly about 2.5, and that's where Paris was. Paris, The aim of Paris was to go beneath them, significantly below 2 degrees. And now even Alok Sharma is saying that 1.5 is within sight, but its pulse is weakening. Very, very downbeat language from him. Now, if anybody has been following this sort of closely, it, it went as you would expect it to go. Because ultimately, this is not... Um, you can't really put heads around a table and negotiate and try to wind them down, bear them down by late night negotiations. The person who was worn down here was Alok Sharma. He ended up ending the conference with an admission of defeat, the precise opposite of what his job was. Boris Johnson wanted a declaration of success, and Boris Johnson is is very, very good at declaring failure to be, in fact, a, disca- a success in disguise. 
Now, it was never quite clear, by the way, who Alex Sharma worked for. Was he a United Nations delegate in charge of the UN climate change? Or was he, as he here as a British cabinet member? If you're a UN person, then of course you're going to say, this wasn't good enough, we need to do a lot better, don't congratulate yourself. But if you're a British government person, of course you want to declare it to be the biggest, biggest victory in the world. So you see um, the tension between these two positions being played out in what, what Alex Sharma had to say in that clip we just heard, and what he was made to say in the statement subsequently released after the thumbscrews thumb had been applied to him by Number 10. And, Isabel, in other news from yesterday, obviously it was Remembrance Sunday, but there was an attempted, it seems, terrorist attack in Liverpool. Can you tell us what happened there? Yes, yeah, so it seems to have been planned to take place during uh, the start of the the two-minute silence for Remembrance Sunday. And there are reports that the person who has died, who is believed to be the attacker, had originally aimed for the Liverpool uh, City Centre Civic event for Remembrance Sunday, but uh, ended up going to Liverpool Women's Hospital in a taxi uh, where the device uh, at least partially detonated, killing him and injuring the taxi driver who seems to have twigged that something was going on and uh, tried to stop this man by locking him in the taxi. And the driver, I think, has been released from hospital. It's been declared now as a, as a terrorist incident. And Boris Johnson has been chairing COBRA, the um, emergency meeting uh, that the government has to uh, coordinate all the, all the agencies involved in these sorts of incidents today to discuss the response. Uh, and a number of people have been arrested. I think one of the things that's really striking about this, and it's something that we've that we noticed in Parliament after the death of Sir David Amos, is quite how little shock this incident has caused. Even though it is you know, absolutely horrifying that someone would try to attack a Remembrance Sunday event or indeed a, a hospital, terrorist incidents have become unfortunately more normal in this country. It's something that I've really noticed in conversations with MPs following the death of one of their own only a few weeks ago, that they've been shocked by how quickly life went back to normal in Parliament. After Joe Cox was murdered, Parliament felt very, very odd and a very sort of acute and painful place for about three weeks, I'd say. I think after Sir David Amos died, it was probably about a day before Parliament went back to normal. And and that's a terrible thing to have to say, but it, it does seem as though a lot of the attacks that are happening at the moment, people are not surprised by them, are less shaken by them than the country has been in, in years gone by. Fraser, when we were having editorial conference just before this podcast, um, we were discussing whether or not this is in a kind of reverse way actually kind of to be welcomed in that terrorism doesn't instill the kind of terror that it's meant to do what do you think about that as normalization is it it, could it ever be a good thing well i don't think you can describe it as a good thing if we sometimes if we start to see these um low-level improvised terror attacks as being part of our daily life i remember when i came down to london um almost quarter of a century ago you you would move around the city in the expectation that the IRA would probably try something in a few months, it was just a matter of when. But then that changed, you know, bin bags came back to the underground and um, 
And I think that was definitely an improvement. There's no doubt that you're less likely to encourage copycats attacks if they sort of have their impact blunted. And then the other paradox is that because they're aiming relatively low, not this isn't a sort of Heathrow-style bomb attack with lots of other people, although three other people have been arrested in relation to this, um, what, what police now say is a terror attack, that if you want to go anything particularly above a small, isolated, localised attack, the chances of being caught seem to be a lot higher. Now, that, of course, is to be welcomed, that terrorists have, are losing the ability to do any serious 911-style attack because British intelligence, and indeed worldwide intelligence, has caught up with them. Though I have to say, looking at the facts, this could have been a lot worse. It just happens to be. The terrorists just happened to have chosen the wrong taxi driver, somebody who was quite happy to, to on suspicion, Run out of the taxi, lock the lock the terrorist in the taxi, let the car let the um, explosion happen in the taxi rather than perhaps in the hospital, which is perhaps where he might have been heading afterwards. So this we could have been looking at a terrible attack. Say he'd made it into the A and E waiting room, and say he'd managed to take down some of the masonry in the hospital. We could be really talking about one of the bigger terror attacks in British history. It just so happened, but for the quick wits and the courage of, of a taxi driver, um, Dave Perry, his name is, who himself sustained quite serious injuries, um, even though he's out of a taxi at the time, we could really be looking at a very different story. So to me, this um, attack just demonstrates just how many attacks or attempts are still ongoing, how many of these attempts are intercepted and thwarted by security services in a way that we never find out about, and how terrorism is still very much still with us. Well, Isabel, just on that, I mean, it's the it's these lone wolf or almost just kind of homemade terror attacks that are more terrifying, isn't it? Because there's so little to tra- trace and track. And that's the problem with the David Amos murders. How are you meant to police a hospital or constituency surgery? Yeah, this has been the debate, obviously, that MPs have been having is, you know, how, how do they protect themselves while not shutting themselves off entirely and the the answer to that is they can't shut themselves off entirely because constituency surgeries are currently the, the sort of vulnerable location but one way or the other MPs are not always behind the you know the locked iron gates of parliament and uh, and they do need to be able to get out and about and it is much harder to track lone wolves it is much harder to track and stop somebody who wants to go out and you know take a kitchen knife for instance and, and attack somebody uh, versus the sort of older plots where it was much more likely that someone would go out and start buying large numbers of large quantities of chemicals for instance in order to uh, to make a bomb you don't need to you know search up how to stab somebody which would flag somebody as a potential risk so this this is the big debate and how many people who appear to have been radicalized can the security services realistically track? Not all of them will turn out to be violent extremists. Uh, and so where do, you, where do you draw the line? Isabel and Fraser, thanks very much. And if you enjoyed this podcast, remember you can sign up to Daily Political Analysis from Isabel at The Evening Blend, which is at spectator.co.uk forward slash blend. That's just a daily newsletter, which is all for free. Thanks for listening and join us again tomorrow.